All right, good morning, church. Our scripture reading for today's sermon comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. You can follow along as I read the passage in your Bibles or your mobile apps. And, of course, as always, the text will be shown on the screen here. 1 Peter, chapter 5. We're going to read the whole thing, verses 1 to 14. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Well, I thought long and hard about what I should preach on today, and I found myself drawn to this passage we just read from 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me uh, first set the stage because I think that will help us understand what's going on here. The Apostle Peter is writing to a group of Christians in North and Central Asia Minor. In the beginning of this letter, he mentions the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. These regions are now part of the country that we know today as Turkey. Now, why did Peter feel the need to write this letter? Well, if we read the entire letter, we'll see that one of his purposes was to encourage his readers. Some of them were evidently experiencing hostility or even outright persecution because of their new faith in Christ. Their commitment to Jesus meant they couldn't participate anymore in certain activities that used to be part of their everyday lives. They couldn't, for example, attend pagan religious ceremonies with their families or with their business associates. We also learn a bit about Peter's own circumstances from the final three verses of our passage. 
he mentions Silas in verse 12 as a faithful brother who has helped with the writing of this letter. And some scholars believe Silas uh, may have written this letter down as Peter was dictating the words. And Silas may also have delivered this letter to the original recipients. And then in verse 13, Peter brings up someone who is in Babylon. It's kind of a cryptic phrase there. It's a female figure, evidently, because he writes, she who is in Babylon. Now, Babylon may actually be code for Rome, because Rome was the world's largest and most powerful city in those days. And so if we follow this line of thinking, if Peter is using the word Babylon as code for Rome, then she who is in Babylon may actually be another code word for the church that is in Rome. The word for church in the original language is feminine. It's a feminine noun. So if we put these clues together, Peter may have been in Rome when he wrote this letter with Silas's help, which probably meant that Peter was an older man than the Peter that we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. According to the earliest Christian traditions, Peter was eventually killed in Rome. But before he dies, he writes this letter to encourage the Christians in Asia Minor who are suffering for their faith. The passage we just read is his conclusion as Peter is wrapping up. He offers some final words of advice that I've decided to describe as marks of a thriving church. Marks of a thriving church. We can see at least three in our passage this morning. Those marks are humility, faith, and watchfulness. Three marks of a thriving church, at least according to our passage. Humility, faith, and watchfulness. The first mark of a thriving church is humility, or if I put it more accurately based on what Peter says in verses 1 through 7, we could actually call it mutual humility. A thriving church is a church whose people show humility toward one another. We see Peter addressing two groups of people in these verses. There's first the elders in verses 1 through 4, and then there are the younger in the beginning of verse 5. Now these two words might make us think Peter's talking about age categories here. But when we look at the instructions he gives, especially in the first four verses, it's clear that the elders are the leaders of the church. Now there were a few leaders in the early church, such as Timothy, who were relatively younger in age, but the far more common cultural custom in those days was to appoint leaders from among the older men. And that seemed to be the case for the churches Peter was writing to here. But interestingly, he doesn't talk at all about how these leaders are selected. Peter just assumes that these churches have leaders, and then he gives them the overall charge in verse 2 for them to be shepherds of God's flock. They're to shepherd God's flock. If they're not to do it out of obligation, they're to serve rather from a willing heart, as he puts it in verse 2. They're to serve also with an eager spirit and not out of greed. And note especially what he says in verse 3. These elders shouldn't lord it over the flock. Instead, they should lead by example. 
In other words, leaders should not be authoritarian. They should not be self-serving. The single defining quality of a church leader should be humility. Humility. But this raises another question. Where does this humility come from? Are some people just born more humble? Or can we learn it by taking a class or attending a seminar? I'm being silly, of course. Peter actually gives us a clue in verse 3. There he says that those who serve as leaders shouldn't lord it over those entrusted to you. You could more literally translate that as not lording it over your portion. Not lording it over your portion. It's almost as if Peter's saying that members of the flock are apportioned or maybe even assigned to their leaders so that they can receive care and oversight, at least for that specific season in their life. And who is it exactly who gives or portions or assigns these members of the flock to their leaders? Well, the assumption here is God does. God does. And that also means that leaders do not own their churches. They are merely stewards or managers. And they will have to answer someday to the true master about how faithfully they carried out their assignment. Now that's a humbling reality. Any leader who really gets this will know that there's no place for arrogance or selfishness among those who would serve Christ and his people. And I think this is also why Peter mentions the chief shepherd in verse 4. Leaders who have truly cared for the flock that God has entrusted to them, has a portion to them, can expect to be rewarded for their service. And it's a reward that will never fade. Again, according to verse 4. Now, this is a tough assignment. It's a high calling, but for what it's worth, Peter is not asking these leaders to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. Peter had his own taste of humble pie when he was younger, specifically when he denied Jesus three times. In fact, his charge for these leaders to be shepherds of God's flock in verse 2 of our passage is the same word Peter himself heard from Jesus in John chapter 21, verse 16, when Jesus said to Peter, take care of my sheep, as Peter was being reinstated. Notice also how Peter addresses himself in verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Peter easily could have asserted his authority as an apostle. I mean, this guy was one of the original 12. In fact, Peter was the recognized leader of the 12. The first among equals, so to speak. He could have mentioned all of that as an apostle, as one of the twelve, as the leader of the twelve. He could mention all that to give his instructions a little more oomph, but instead he makes his appeal as one of them. He's an elder, just like they are. And I think many of us can tell whether or not their leaders believe deep down that they're not the owners, but merely the stewards who will help be held accountable for their service. I think you can sense it in the way they carry themselves, both in public and private. 
You can see it in the way that they speak. You can see it in the attitude that accompanies their decision-making. I just have to say, one of the greatest joys and privileges I've had pastoring here over these past 11-plus years has been the opportunity to serve with so many leaders who have modeled consistently this kind of humility. I've seen it among our C group leaders. I've seen it among our women's group leaders, our men's group leaders. I've seen it among our youth group parent volunteers. I've seen it among our RCC kids volunteers. I've seen it among our worship team members and our facilities members who set up every morning, our welcoming team members who greet each person as they come through the doors and send emails to folks who are visiting or new. I've seen among those who watch our kids in the morning as everyone else is setting up before service. I've seen it among our deacons year after year after year. I've seen it among those who have served on our finance ministry. I've seen it among our staff, many staff I've been privileged to work with. And I've seen it especially among our elders. It has been such an honor to serve with these men and with their families. They have taught me so much through their example. I've known these brothers for a long time. In many cases, our friendships goes back for decades. And I have to tell you, these guys are the real deal. I've seen them consistently model to me and to our church the kind of servant leadership that Peter calls for in our passage. And I know, I know RCC will be in good hands as they continue to shepherd this flock that's under their care. Now after this lengthy introduction to the leaders, Peter also has something to say to those who are younger. In the same way you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders. Now, Remember, in light of the context, the younger here is basically anyone in the church who are not serving as leaders. And Peter's point here is just as the leaders are to show humility toward the flock by not lording it over them, the congregation should also show humility by submitting to the care and oversight of their leaders. Peter talks a bit more about this mutual humility in the second half of verse 5. He says there, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That's a rather odd phrase Peter uses there. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. There's some scholars who think Peter chose these words deliberately because he's thinking back to a specific event from his own life when Jesus wrapped a servant's towel around his waist as he was getting ready to wash the feet of his disciples. Peter was there when Jesus set that ultimate example of humility. You may remember from that story in John 13 that Peter was actually a bit uncomfortable at this thought of his master washing his feet. But now he has a warning for those who don't want to listen to his instructions here. Anyone who claims to be a Christian but shows no interest in learning this kind of humility, will find themselves facing a very tough opponent. He quotes from the Old Testament book of Proverbs in verse 5 when he says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 
John Calvin, the great theologian, has an interesting take on this verse. He says, we are to imagine that God has two hands, one which is like a hammer, which beats down into pieces those who raise themselves up, and the other which raises up the humble who willingly bow themselves down. Now that's putting it rather strongly. But at the same time, I don't want us to miss the emotional weight of what Peter's warning here. God opposes the proud. That's serious stuff. Now, thankfully, Peter doesn't just give a warning. He also offers a promise. God doesn't just oppose the proud. He also shows favor to the humble. And that is such a comforting promise. And it teaches us also about the true meaning of humility. What is humility? According to Ed Clowney, a theologian, the humility of those who would serve Christ is not merely the absence of pride or the awareness of limitations. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. I love that last sentence. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. He goes on and says, the Christian knows that he did not make himself or save himself. His humility springs from his total dependence on the grace of God. Added to that is the calling and example of a Savior who had everything to boast of, but, quote, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, unquote. To put it differently, mutual humility between those who lead and those who are led happens only when the gospel is rightly understood and lived out. If we really see ourselves as sinners who deserve nothing but God's judgment, how can we not feel humbled and thankful when we also realize that God hasn't given us what we deserve? Instead, he's shown us mercy. He's given us grace. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's given us a right standing before him. And he's done all that at the cost of his own son's precious blood. It was on the cross where our chief shepherd was condemned in our place so that we could receive grace, mercy, forgiveness, love, hope, eternal life when we put our faith in him. And this is the gospel. And if we really get it, And we also know that we never stop needing His grace. We'll always need it. And those who know how desperately they need His grace will be among the first to lay down their pride. I'm so thankful I've been able to serve at a church that has consistently shown this mutual humility. And I hope RCC will continue to be a church that keeps the gospel at the center because really that's the only way this community will continue to grow in humility toward God and toward one another. This mutual humility is the first mark of a thriving church according to our passage. The second mark is faith. Faith is the second mark. Let's look again at verses 6 and 7. Peter there says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
Now that phrase, God's mighty hand, shows up in other passages in the Bible. We see it, for example, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 9, to describe how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt with his mighty hand. If that's what Peter has in mind, his message in in our passage might be to his readers that they should trust in God's power to rescue them from their suffering. But the Bible also uses that phrase to describe how God can use even hardship for his people's good. This is how it's used in the book of Job. In Job chapter 30, verse 21, he complains about how God has attacked him, his words, attacked him with his mighty hand. But if you read the whole book of Job, then we know that Job is not yet aware that God has greater purposes even behind his suffering. And if this is what Peter has in mind, well, then he's reminding his readers that God can use even their short-term suffering for their long-term and eternal good. And I think he may actually have both of these ideas in mind. Peter's encouraging his readers, on the one hand, to submit themselves to whatever trials they're experiencing, knowing that God can use even that hardship for their good. But they should also trust God to bring them safely through those trials. In his time, he will deliver them by his mighty hand. But this kind of faith, it's hard. It's so hard because it forces us to build a habit of deliberately placing all of our fears and concerns into God's loving hand day after day after day after day. We see this in verse 7. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is how we build faith. By casting our anxiety on the Lord. Trusting that he cares for us. When RCC was getting ready to launch back in 2010, Jane was pregnant with Leah. Seeing, Seeing that older picture with our kids at the apple picking brought back some of those memories. And when Leah was born, Titus officially became a middle child. Amen. Well, many of you know that Leah and Titus are less than two years apart. And a good number of you also know that the age difference between Titus and our oldest, Timothy, is more than four years. But not as many of you may be aware of the reason why there's this large age gap between our two boys. The reason is we actually had a difficult time conceiving after Timothy was born. We went through month after month after month after month after month after month of negative pregnancy tests. And there was even a point where we started wondering if we'd even have another kid. I mean, we wanted one badly, and boy, in our lower moments, we wouldn't even think stupid thoughts like, well, maybe God isn't giving us another baby because we're doing such a bad job with Timothy. I know know that sounds crazy, but I'm just being honest. When you're not emotionally in a good place, your mind can kind of run into dark corners, if you will. Now, our story has a happy ending. God gave us Titus. (laughs) And then Leah. But I'm not sharing this because I believe every trial has a happy ending this side of heaven. I've been a Christian and a pastor long enough to know that's not the case. 
I'm sharing this because as we were going through that tough season, we knew in our minds that we needed to surrender this burden to God. But actually doing that was so hard. It had to become an everyday decision for us. I guess what I'm saying is this faith that Peter's talking about here, it's hard. It requires an everyday decision to consciously cast our anxieties upon God, especially when he doesn't seem to answer us as quickly as we'd like him to. I know some of us here feel anxious about our church's future, but I also hope many of us will be able to really take this word from Peter to heart. God may, in fact, be offering an opportunity to seek him together, to cast your anxieties upon him and grow in your faith together. And faith is the second mark of a thriving church. The third and last mark in our passage is watchfulness. Watchfulness. One important point Peter makes in our passage is that if God's people are going to thrive, they need to be spiritually alert. They need to have a mindset of watchfulness. Look with me again at verse 8. He says there, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, Peter, of course, had firsthand experience about the danger of not being alert, of falling asleep at the worst possible time. You remember he couldn't keep his eyes open when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And once he finally woke up and came to his senses, Judas had already arrived on the scene with the Roman soldiers. Judas, well, he was a traitor. But our enemy, even more dangerous. Peter describes him as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There was, according to Peter, a dark force behind the persecution and the suffering that these Christians in Asia Minor were experiencing. And even today, Christians all around the world are still fighting a spiritual war. The Apostle Paul gives the same warning in the final chapter of the book of Ephesians when he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Many Christians who live here in the West, we tend to downplay this idea of spiritual warfare because this kind of thinking seems a bit too primitive, unsophisticated for our supposedly more sophisticated understanding of reality. This reminds me of an older movie from the 90s called The Usual Suspects. One of the characters in this movie has this memorable line. It says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Well, our text leaves no room for doubt. We can't see our adversary, we can't hear him, but he's real. And he never rests. So we must be constantly watchful. That's not all. Look with me at verse 9. Peter says, Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know 
that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. We must not only be watchful, we must also resist our enemies' attacks. Now, how do we do that? Well, Peter tells us, by standing firm in the faith. We find our strength to stand firm from what we believe about God and about Jesus and about salvation and about eternal life. Basically, everything we confessed earlier in our creed. We stand firm because of what we believe about God's good purposes for us in Christ. We stand firm based on what we believe about where history is going and how it's all going to finally end. And by the way, we also believe there's another lion out there. He's first mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 49, and he appears again in the final book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 there. This lion is worshipped and declared worthy to carry out judgment upon the world. Apostle John says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. Ed Clowney, who I quoted earlier, offers these encouraging words for us. He says, The lion of the tribe of Judah removes our fear of Satan, the roaring lion. I can put it another way, my friends. You and I, we serve the stronger lion. And this is one of the many truths that we can count on to help us stand firm and resist our enemy. The second half of verse 9 offers another truth. Peter says, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I'm sure these Christians in Asia Minor were comforted by this reminder that they weren't alone. There's always something reassuring when you realize you're not the only one that's going through a particular hardship. But there's something else going on here too. You could more literally translate this verse as, because the same kind of sufferings are being completed or being accomplished by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. Kind of similar to how the New American Standard Bible translates it. It's as if Peter's saying there's a set amount, a fixed amount of suffering that God has appointed for his people before the end comes. And so even the efforts of the enemy to attack the church through persecution even that's under the sovereign hand of God. He has set the amount of suffering for his people to endure. And we know there are other brothers and sisters throughout the world, even today in places like China and Afghanistan and the Sudan and Myanmar and North Korea and Iran and many other places who are suffering for their faith. And as these brothers and sisters stand firm, they are further draining the fixed amount of suffering that God has set for the church. Which is why Peter can tell his readers, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, before we finish up, I think it's worth mentioning that our passage simply assumes that Christians will suffer. It comes with the territory of 
following Jesus. Suffering is not something we should actively seek out, but on the other hand, we also shouldn't be surprised if it comes our way. Because we are at war, and our enemy is formidable. And that's why we need to resist him. That's why we need to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. That's why we need to cast all our anxieties on him. Unfortunately, there are times when Christians bring trouble upon themselves because, well, they're being jerks. They're unnecessarily antagonizing people. But let's not kid ourselves, my brothers and sisters. There are also times, even in a free society like ours, where some suffering may come our way simply because of what we believe, because of the truths that we confess. So watchfulness is the third and final mark of a thriving church. Now, before he gives his final greetings, Peter leaves his readers with one last promise. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. The good news for these Christians in Asia Minor is that their suffering wouldn't be the end of their story. Perhaps it'd continue for the rest of their lives, but from the perspective of eternity, it's just for a little while. The same God who called them in Christ to eternal glory will restore them, whether in this side of heaven or in the glory to come, and he will make them strong, firm, and steadfast. And he can do all that because, well, God is all-powerful. And so verse 11 gives the fitting doxology to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. You know, I find it interesting. These believers in Asia Minor were suffering for their faith. So it may seem strange to say that humility and faith and watchfulness are marks of a thriving church. I don't think most people would think of a persecuted church as a thriving church. But it was. Maybe some of us here, you're not sure if RCC can be a thriving church. Well, I'm here to tell you, it can be. It is a thriving church because I've seen firsthand all of these marks on display here over the last 11 plus years. I have seen the mutual humility. I have seen the faith. I have seen the watchfulness. And I am so deeply thankful truly thankful for the privilege to have served as your pastor. I'm thankful to have been a part of what God has done here since we first launched back in 2010. And to bring this down to a more personal level, you all have been so good to us over these years. I just want to thank you for loving me and loving my family in the ways that you have. And I truly believe with all of my heart that RCC's best days are still ahead. I believe that this church, though thriving now, can thrive in even greater ways. And so I hope and pray that you will all keep walking together in mutual humility. That you'll keep walking together in faith. 
that you'll keep walking together in watchfulness for many more years to come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you'd help us to be a people who are humble, truly, before you, before one another. Would you also help us to be people who would learn what it really means to trust you day by day as we cast all of our anxieties upon you. We pray that you'd help us to be a watchful people who stand firm in the faith because we serve a stronger lion. We ask that you do this by your grace so that RCC can continue to thrive even more so that more and more people would come to see through this church how great and how good you really are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.